Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today is about collaboration, and as far as I'm concerned, it's everywhere. Leaders are talking about it all the time. It's showing up in 360 evaluations. It's showing up in leadership competency models, and it's showing up engraved on walls. Companies are citing it as a core value. However, I have to admit that I am not convinced that we actually know what collaboration really looks like, let alone what it is we need to do to create a collaborative culture. And in my experience, organizations are just not very good at making this thing called collaboration a reality. So my guest today is a real deep specialist on this. He's appeared on this show before, and I will tell you that his show has been the single highest downloaded podcast of all time, for years, month in and month out. Clearly, he struck a chord. So we're back for round two. Um, and I'm also going to say that the book is there's a new book out as well. So I want to talk about his new insight on collaborative cultures, including how you assess your organization and your team. I want to talk about how you foster greater collaboration yourself. And I also want to talk about defensiveness and fear and how those play into creating or not great collaborative cultures. So my guest today is Jim Tam, and Jim is Fast Company has described him as an ace relationship builder. For most of his career, he was a senior administrative law judge for the state of California and had jurisdiction over disputes in the workplace. But Jim is currently on the faculty at the International Management Program of the Stockholm School of Economics and the Leadership Academy of the University of California. He's authored training materials that have been published in 16 languages, and the first edition of his book, Radical Collaboration, was on Amazon's top seller list for a number of years, um, well, much of the fast past 14 years. His second edition of Radical Collaboration is just out, and we're delighted to have him with you. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's great to be back with you. I'm delighted to have this conversation. Um, I find I've returned to your ideas over and over again, so I'm looking for and digging a little bit deeper. I want to start, though, Jim, with a bit about you, which is why collaboration? Sure. Why did you get started on this? Why does it matter? Well, you know, most of my career as a judge, I was dealing with people who were actually pretty terrible at collaboration. Uh, Most labor management relationships uh, are not very collaborative because the system pits them against each other. Uh, And this is, we found in the state of California where I was a judge, that this was very expensive, uh, not just for, you know, the cost of judges and courtrooms and things like that, but primarily for the lost productivity and uh, so, we, you know, I set out on this quest with a number of other people in working for the state of California and, and parties within labor management relationships that wanted to turn that around a little bit. Uh, we got a big grant from the Hewlett Foundation. Uh, and then based on the research we did there, uh, we looked at those factors that we could try to change within organizations. And we had a, just an enormous impact uh, in California within relationships 
we, re- we reduced the amount of measurable conflict in almost 100 organizations by almost 70%. It saved the state of California a huge amount of money. So ever since then, and this was back in the late 1980s when I was still a judge there, uh, ever since then I've been focusing on try to, trying to help people become more effective at collaboration because uh, it's, it's become more and more obvious that organizations cannot compete externally if they can't first collaborate internally. Mm-hmm. And if they can't collaborate internally, it's going to cause a real mess for the organization. They just won't be very productive. Yeah. Well, that certainly resonates with everything I see in every single one of my clients, that you're so dependent upon the various parts of the organization to deliver their component in order for you to deliver the promise in the marketplace. Yet, it's not just like I can ping person A and group B and group C and group D and they kind of all magically stitch together. The stitching together is actually kind of thorny. There's messy stuff to get solved. And that's the space where people are just not talking. They're not getting through it and the space for collaboration. Most organizations today are very complex, much more complex than they were 30, 40 years ago. Uh, there's there's more interdependence. The work is more complex, uh, and if people can't, uh, you know, run an organization like a well-oiled machine, uh, it's like throwing sand in the gears, you know. And and people try to keep replacing the gears by replacing people, but if the organization isn't very collaborative, if they're not skilled at collaboration, it's it's never going to run smooth. Mm-hmm. That makes makes sense to us. So let's talk about what it is that makes for a collaborative organization versus a non-collaborative organization. And you talk about this as red, green, and pink cultures. Is that the place to start? Is that the best place to begin? I, I think that's a great place. When we first started looking at the impact that culture has on an organization, this was back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, and we we coined this this term, the red zone and green zone, to to uh, describe two ends of the spectrum. The red zone is a much more adversarial, much more conflicted, uh, much more hostile. They could be uh, internally competitive, but not externally competitive. Uh, you know, they're competing with each other within the organization. Uh, much more hostile environment, not a very safe environment, lots of adversarial relationships. At the other end of the spectrum, we call it the green zone environment because it's a much more collaborative environment. It's it's much more trust-based. They're more effective at cooperation and collaboration. They're much more supportive. They do a better job of resolving conflict uh, and working together. And these were the two ends of the, the spectrum that we saw and, and most organizations that we worked with have a little bit of both. Uh, some of them are primarily red zone. Some were primarily green zone. Um, and we use that as a, a term to define the, the cultures uh, over the years for, you know, 15, 20 years. Uh, and then about, oh, I would say seven to 10 years ago, we started seeing some trends, the changes uh, in the cultures And we started getting a lot of comments from people saying, well, clearly we're in the green zone because we don't fight. You know, if if there's a problem, I just keep my mouth shut. I keep my eyes down and my mouth shut. (laughs) And they were assuming that the absence of outright warfare was an indication that they were good at collaboration because they were 
you know, it looked like they were being nice to each other. Uh, but in fact, all, all they're talking about is a more passive and more passive-aggressive version of the red zone. So that's why we started calling that particular type of culture the pink zone, because it looks nicer. You know, it looks not as red as a hostile, conflicted red zone environment, but it's actually, I think it's less effective than uh, even a red zone environment, because you can't tell where the problems are in a pink zone environment. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you go into an organization and they're having a pink zone meeting, everybody's sitting around and saying, oh, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, sure, you know. And then people leave the meeting, and guess what happens? Absolutely nothing, because nobody's willing to stand up and, and take a stand and say, wait a minute, this isn't a good project for us to work on, or we're wasting our time on this, or, you know, let me give you some feedback. They're afraid to do that. Um, so now I would say that the majority of our clients are more pink zone cultures. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more destructive uh, culture because uh, it's hard to spot the problems in a pink zone uh, organization. But it's, it's, I think, become the predominant culture, not just among our clients, but in organizational life in general today. So what's yeah. a problem? I, that resonates with me. I'm thinking about several clients that I know that might have been more red zone at one point in time, and they um, get the, I almost want to say drink the Kool-Aid, but they buy into the notion that they need to be more relationship-oriented, largely because they need to be more relationship-oriented in the external marketplace. And therefore, we have to be more relationship-oriented. So you layer on what was quite adversarial and openly adversarial, a be nice culture. Yeah. And well, and, means, I, and I think it takes that, it underground. Uh, go ahead. No, but it takes it underground. It takes the conflict underground. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the case. And uh, in addition to thinking that they need to be better at relationships, uh, organizations typically have become more effective at stopping uh, aggressive bully behavior, too. I mean, it used to be that if a manager was a red zone manager, they were thought of as a hard-driving, you know, strong, forceful, get-in-there-and-get-the-job-done type of personality. Uh, But now, oftentimes, they're just organizations are better off uh, seeing and spotting just bully behavior, you know, where Mm -hmm. people are mistreating the employees and on top of that, employees can start suing and doing something about right. it, too. They won't put up with that, with that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. So organizations have done a much better job of dealing with red zone behavior. They've shut that down more than they had in the past. But like you said, that doesn't push them into collaboration. It just tends to make the stuff go underground. The, yeah. the people in the workplace become more fear-based. Uh, and uh, conflict avoidant. Yeah, yeah. I was um, working with somebody yesterday. Um, Obviously, we'll keep the names and the company out of this description, but the frustration (laughs) was the interdependence between two countries. So country A has a set of client relationships. Country B is providing content knowledge expertise that's relevant for those client relationships. And yet you've got country A is the gatekeeper, if you will, in getting something done. And there is enormous conflict between the person leading the client in country A and the person leading the product in current country B. 
So I have client versus product. I have country versus country. And I have distance added to that. And the frustrations, I see this kind of thing all the time in a major classic matrix structure. And what you end up thinking is the person in position A is thinking, well, why won't my management defend me against those guys over there that are clearly self-serving and self-interested in whatever other judgments that go along with it? And I'm sure if I talked to country B, I'd get the exact same story in reverse direction. Not willing to help. They don't care about us. They're just self-centered. Is that yeah, the kind of stuff absolutely. that you would describe as pink zone or red zone? Well, it, it, it could be. Uh, if, they're, if they're red zone about it, they would be much more aggressive in their blaming and shaming of the other party. Much more open, much more verbal, much more hostile about it. If they're pink zone about it, they would be much more passive. You know, they would just say, oh, yeah, we'll cooperate, and then they don't do anything. Uh, so it could show up in, in both types of of uh, cultures. Uh, The the key, though, is getting uh, all the parties to be focused on the same goals and and dealing with their underlying interests. I mean, people tend to focus on what their own interests are uh, unless they're in a strong collaborative relationship. If they're in that strong green zone relationship, then they're focused on the the interest of the organization of the whole and of all the parties within that organization. But typically right. that's not happening in red zone or pink zone. So, you know, one of the clues or the keys to trying to getting them to work more effectively together is trying to get them to understand the interests of all the parties and then working together to meet as many of those interests as they can together rather than just focused on their own interests. Okay, now that sounds lovely. <laughs> I like this one. Before I go jumping into how do you do that, can you give me any, I mean, are there really green zone organizations that exist out there? Can you give me an example of what that feels like, looks like? Uh, well, in, in most situations that I'm working with today, there are green zone parts of an organization. I mean, I think that there are some, some organizations that are more green zone than others. Uh, but usually what it is, it might be a department, it might be a division, it might be a country uh, where they're mm-hmm. very green zone. I mean, I can, I can tell you with some of the clients we work with, they will have a particular manufacturing plant that is running smooth and positive and they're just outperforming everybody else. Uh, they support each other. It's very green zone. And then within the same company, a different uh, plant in a different location could be very red zone. Uh, another one could be very pink zone. So it's it's hard to say, uh, you know, for most big organizations that they're a pure red zone organization or a pure pink zone organization. Uh, if you if you get a chance to work with an organization around the world and you see different parts of it, you can see whether it's primarily red or pink or or green. But uh, in most of the organizations that I'm working with now. Uh, even when they have some organ, some parts of the organization that are green zone, I would say the predominant culture is is more of a pink zone. Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and presumably, it's down to leadership in one facility versus another facility that sets the climate, or is it a bigger story than that? Well, I think it's uh, a bigger story because uh, it certainly the leadership makes the biggest difference, but. Um, if you have a red zone leader 
in an organization. I, I'm, I'm thinking one of my clients in particular. Uh, they, they have a they have a very green zone leader right at the moment, and a very green zone top management team. I mean, they're doing everything right as as, as I can see it anyway. Uh, but they have a very pink zone workforce because prior to this management group coming in, they had very red zone leaders. Uh-huh. Uh, and so people have this this lack of trust within the organization. And so you get a new leader in who is much more green zone, who is much more collaborative, much more effective. And they say, well, you know, things are going to be different now. And the employees tend to sit back and say, oh, well, we'll wait and see <laughs> because you know, yeah, right. we've been burned about this before. And yeah. so... Uh, you could have strong green zone, effective management teams, and it just takes a really long time to turn an organization around. You know, it's like yeah. turning an aircraft carrier around with an oar. Uh, yeah. Unless, unless you can make some really dramatic moves uh, and and shake things up, and sometimes that's that's what people will try and do when they come in with a new management team. But okay. don't be surprised if you get a new management team that that doesn't just solve the problem. Right, right. That makes sense to me, too. I always say that the leadership, the leaders can actually destroy a culture, but it takes the entire organization to change that culture into something new. And you're seeing some of the same thing. We've kind of all got to get on the same page. All right, yeah. Jim. So red zone cultures where people are fighting and arguing and very, you know, each person a bit out for themselves. Green zone cultures where yeah. we're really looking at common interest, the whole, not just my individual self-interest and a lot of other characteristics. And pink zones where we make it look nice, but the reality is we're just not saying anything, not saying what's going on. That's my thumbnail sketch. So yeah. I, I would say, you know, the, the red zone is that people are out for themselves only. In pink zone, they're more out to avoid losing. <laughs> in green zone, they're they're more interested in mutual gain. One, the okay. red zone is to defeat the others. The pink zone is to survive the others. In the green zone, is to connect with others. You know, that you, so you can get a flavor for it that way. Okay. But I think that your description is is absolutely accurate. Okay, great. I love that one. That's a clever one. So you started by saying that it is, you know, one of the clues to moving towards a more green zone culture is to get all the parties to understand the interest of each other. So what are the steps for beginning to become a more green zone culture? Well, I think the first step uh, is recognizing uh, what you want, that, that mm-hmm. it's a more effective culture to have. You know, there's just been a massive amount of research showing that a green zone culture will outperform either red or pink zone cultures uh, over the long run, you know, in just, you know, um, really huge ways. Uh, so when you get that understanding, then you need to figure out, all right, where are we? Mm-hmm. What is our culture right now? Uh, are people supporting each other? Um, because if you don't know where you are, it's hard to determine where you want to go, you know, or how to get where you want to go, even if you know where you want to go, if you don't know where you mm-hmm. are. So uh, we encourage uh, parties to do, you know, some kind of an assessment of what their current culture is. How do they resolve conflict? How well do they collaborate? How well do they communicate? Uh, do they really understand the interest of all the parties? Uh, does the system support uh, the parties working together, or does it create 
uh, incentive for them not to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had uh, one uh, client that we were working with a number of years ago where they uh, produced uh, soap, you know, boxes of mm-hmm. uh, dish soap and, and laundry soap and that kind of stuff. And the amount of money that they got from the headquarters was determined uh, to a great extent by how much profit they generated at that particular plant compared to the, the other plants that were making the same product. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a system like that, don't be surprised if somebody at one plant discovers new, some new process that's really effective and can help them shave a, you know, a quarter of a penny off every box of soap. Don't be surprised if they're not willing to share that with the other plant because they're competing with the other plant. So you need to make sure that the system itself supports them working together. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think, the, you know, at some point in time, you need to give people skill because yeah. uh, people talk a lot about collaboration. But I agree with you with what you said in the beginning. There's a lot of talk about collaboration, but most organizations and most people within organizations are not very skilled at collaboration because no one has ever taught them that. Yes. There, there was one uh, study that was done uh, in uh, Latin America where uh, a professor uh, interviewed over 100 CEOs and asked them, what's the number one thing that you need from college graduates? Because they were looking at how effective the universities were. And what came out far and above everything else was the ability to work together with other people on a team. Mm -hmm. And then they looked at what's the, you know, how well they were teaching that within the universities. And they looked at, you know, 20, 25 different things that they were teaching. That was the lowest, (laughs) that was the the lowest score that they got. So people are coming out of universities today without having any particular uh, skill at working together. Yeah. Uh, so organizations have to take that on themselves. And at some point in time, you've got to teach people how to collaborate because it does yeah. involve skills. Yeah. I, I think most, well, let's see, let me rephrase this, most U.S. universities and especially most business schools will be doing something that they call collaboration. Largely, they yeah. get a group of people together who are going to um, be either a study group or they're going to deliver a project or a paper or an assignment at the end of the day. My experience working with the students in the U.S. is what happens is that it is a divide and conquer. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and we'll stitch it all together at the end of the day. That's not collaboration in the ultimate sense. I mean, maybe the intention is good. And it doesn't support collaboration either because what they say is they throw a bunch of people in in a room. This happens in in organizations all the time. They say, oh, now you're a team, so we want you to work together. But they don't give them the actual skills. They don't even talk about the skills. They expect them to figure it out on their own for the most part. Now, there are some organizations out there that they're, they're teaching that. They're teaching them the, the negotiating skills. They're teaching them the relationship skills, you know, the communication skills. But for the most part, they throw them in together and say, now you're going to do teamwork. You know, you guys figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And we don't have time to invest in it, by the way. So figure it out quickly. Which, for me, leads to a model I call divide and conquer. You know, you do your part, I'll do my part, and let's hope it all works out at the end of the day. All right, Jim, so let's talk about these skills. (laughs) 
I have an interesting story about that one, but I'm more interested in hearing your skills. Let's talk about what are the skills you really think people need in order to be effective collaborators. Sure. When we uh, started this project, uh, you know, we were focusing basically on relationship skills and conflict resolution skills. And we've, and since then, uh, over the years, we've refined it down to five key skills that we think are absolutely essential if what you're trying to do is build a more collaborative organization or a more collaborative environment, or if you simply want to get better at dealing with your own relationships. The first skill we call collaborative intention. And this is more the mindset. It's having the ability to stay focused on mutual gains in your relationships when you hit one of those speed bumps in the road where somebody makes a mistake or does something you don't understand. You know, can you, can you stay in the green zone and get curious or do you go into the red zone and get furious? You know? mm-hmm. So we try to get people to pay attention to what their mindset is. The second skill now we call openness uh, because w- the, the research is pretty clear that uh, one of the more important things you can do to improve the effectiveness of any organization is generally increase the level of openness within that organization. One of my mentors, a fellow named Will Schutz, found this probably 50, 60 years ago in a huge amount of research he did within the military and the corporate world. Uh, and it's been borne up just recently by all the, the uh, research that Google has been doing on Teams. You know, they they had this project called uh, Project Aristotle. They wanted to figure mm-hmm. out what's the difference between high-performing teams and low-performing teams. Mm-hmm. And Google being, you know, one of the most data-driven companies in the world, they anything that you could measure, they measured. You know, they looked at how often people went to lunch, what the gender balance was, the age balance, the experience balance, and all that kind of stuff. And then they studied it for a two-year period. And what they realized is that most of the factors they looked at, uh, they could do just as good a job putting a team together by throwing a dart. It just had absolutely no impact on the outcome of the team. But there was one factor that was just far and above everything else uh, as far as making a high-performing team or a low-performing team. And that was something that they called psychological safety. This mm-hmm. is a term created by uh, uh, Amy Edmondson at Harvard which basically is a green zone culture where people feel safe enough raising difficult issues and telling their truth. Uh, they don't have to worry that they're going to be ridiculed or, or uh, uh, you know, lose their job if they disagree. Uh, and that was the, the factor that they found in every high-performing team they had, and it was missing in just about every low-performing team they had. Yep. So uh, we, we put a big emphasis on openness right now, the skills, you know, for being more uh, clear about your own communications and doing a better job of listening to. The next skill we call self-accountability, which is being aware of what choices you're making and being accountable for all of the consequences. And if we can get people to change their mindset a little bit about how much choice they have in an organization, it can be very empowering for that organization. In groups where they're very high on, a, on self-accountability, they're also very low on whining and sniveling and complaining because if they don't like something, they'll do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth skill we call self-awareness. Here we focus on how people like to behave when they're in relationships. That's one factor, something called FIRO theory. Uh, and then the second thing is we focus on defensiveness because defensiveness is such a key to success. 
in organizations. I think I've seen more leaders have been derailed uh, in their careers because they start getting defensive more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a really big one. We spent a lot of time on that one, and maybe we can come back and talk more I'd, about that uh, today. I'd and like then to, the I'd, last yeah. skill. But, go ahead. So this explains to me why we've been doing self-awareness and leadership training and in team development for eons, and that's why it's not working so well. I mean, it can be great fun, it can be insightful, but it doesn't necessarily lead to changes in behavior or to changes in team performance, and it's because we've got one of the five components. There are four other components that have to be tackled in order to make uh, make the team a collaborative environment. Yeah, you know, one of the things we got wrong when we first started out, we got a lot of things right, but one of the things we got wrong was the the fifth skill, which I I was just going to mention a minute ago, was negotiating and problem solving. Mm -hmm. And when we went out to road test this in California, we went out looking for the most screwed up, dysfunctional, highly conflicted organizations we could find. Uh, so we started in, with labor management relationships in public school districts because they were really screwed up back in the, mm-hmm. the 80s. But because they had so much conflict, I was thinking, at least I got this wrong, I was thinking that if we just taught them how to negotiate their way through that conflict, that ought to solve their problem. And what we learned over the years was that we could teach people the best negotiating process in the world. But if they showed up at the table with a bad attitude or they got defensive, they would screw up any system that we could teach them. Uh-huh. So now we've almost had to reverse the amount of time we spend teaching these other four skills because it's the ability to stay uh, with a green zone mindset, you know, to have that mutual gains as your focus in your relationship, the ability to uh, not get defensive. It's the ability to create that safe, open spot, to be accountable. It's those skills that make the negotiating system that we teach people actually work to solve problems. But you need all five of the skills. It's a, it's a balance. You know, you, if, if you're lacking any one particular of those skills, uh, you're not going to be very effective at collaboration. Okay, that makes sense. So, Jim, just to make sure I have the five skills straight, there's this thing you call collaborative intention. So focusing on mutual gains, and it really shows up when we hit a speed bump. Um, how do we do, how do we act? Do we get curious or do we get furious? I think you said. Two is this openness, yeah. and that's tightly tied to psychological safety. We can say more about that. Three is this self-accountability where you are aware of the choices you're making and the consequences of those choices and recognizing there's more than any of us actually really understand at the moment. The fourth is the self-awareness, which ties in with this whole notion of being defensiveness and understanding that process. Um, and how you'd like to behave in relationships. And the fifth is this negotiating and problem-solving skills. Did I get those all straight? Absolutely. Great job. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So what I would like to do at this point, take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this defensiveness. And I also want to talk about openness because it's an easy thing to say. It's a whole other thing to figure out how to do it in practice. So my guest today is Jim Tam, and we're talking about the second edition of his book, Radical Collaboration. We'll be right back.
us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jim Tam, and we're talking about Jim's second edition of his book, Radical Collaboration. I can tell you it's an amazing book in the first edition, and the second edition is even better. Um, And Jim has been described by Fast Company as the ace relationship builder. So we've just been reviewing what Jim thinks are the skills that it takes to create a collaborative culture. I should reiterate that it's not just these skills, that we have to start with an understanding of where we are in our cultures, reds zone, green zone, pink zone, and then we have to have some assessment about our intention of where we want to go, and then we can begin to say, well, what are the skills that people need to acquire in order to be effective at collaboration? And this is going to be a very simple statement, but I think I've just had an aha here, which is this notion that when we teach team building or when we try to teach something close to collaboration, we basically do self-awareness. And we do um, negotiation skills, and we assume people already have problem-solving skills. But as Jim will say, there's a lot more to it than that. There are these things called intent, which is understanding the collaborative intent, understanding what the other parties care about. And then there's this thing called openness. And then there's this thing with self-awareness called defensiveness. And then there's this piece called self-accountability plus the negotiation and problem-solving skills. So, Jim, I want to focus on the two hardest parts, in my mind, of those, openness and defensiveness. So how do you help people get better at either end of the spectrum, openness and defensiveness? So let me, let me start with defensiveness because defensiveness impacts everything. Uh, okay. it, it's hard to have an open, safe, psychologically safe environment where people are getting defensive. Uh, and they, okay. they simply don't go hand in hand. So defensiveness is such uh, a killer to effective relationships and effective problem solving. Uh, if you're trying to resolve a conflict and you start getting defensive, it's like pouring blood and water to a shark. It's going to mm-hmm. create a feeding frenzy. So what 
we try to do is, first of all, help people get a better understanding of what's going on when they get defensive. Now, most people think that, that uh, I get defensive when somebody has done something to me and I need to defend myself from that other person. But that's not what's really going on when we get defensive. What's really going on is we are defending ourselves from fears inside of us that we don't want to feel. And so we behave in a way that lets us stay unaware of that. And there are three big fears that come up all the time that drive people into defensiveness. It's fears about our own significance and our competence and our likability. Significance, competence, and likability. So let me give you an example of that. If I have some fears about doing this program with you today, Wanda, uh, and, you know, say I, I just flew in from Asia last night and I'm jet lagged and I'm forgetting things and, and stumbling over my words and not doing a good job. That could cause me a lot of discomfort. But one way that I could reduce the amount of discomfort that I feel, you know, out of my fear for being incompetent is I might start blaming you or blaming the radio or blaming the phone system. You know, it's, it's like, oh, how do they expect me to do this with a, a mobile phone or, you know, over uh, the time zones and coming up with a lot of defensive reaction there to try to shift the blame from my own fear about my own competence to what's going on out there in the world. So it's helpful for people to understand that when they get defensive, it's because they're fearful about something. And if you want to get better at dealing with your defensiveness, you need to figure out what that fear is about. Because defensiveness is always fear-based. Always, always, always. So if we can get people to, first of all, understand what their defensiveness is about, and then second of all, start spotting their own defensiveness at an earlier point in the process, before it's too late. Most of this defensiveness stuff is... It's unconscious on our part. And so we don't recognize it early enough to do anything about it. We don't even see it until we've already screwed up the relationship or screwed up the conversation or the meeting, you know. So we try to help people spot their defensiveness earlier in the process, not by digging for that fear originally, because that's the whole point of a defense system is to help us not feel it, but by looking more at their outward behaviors, because these outward signs, these outward behaviors, these signs of defensiveness are usually easier to spot at an earlier point in the process. <clears throat> Let me okay. give you an example of that. Yeah. Good. If I, if I know that I'm, um, when I start to get defensive, if I'm in a room filled with people, I'm getting some feedback and I'm starting to get defensive. Uh, if I know that my, my breathing becomes faster and I start talking louder and start talking faster and feel very misunderstood, if I know that's how I start to react when I get defensive and I notice myself doing that, then the alarm bells can go off in my own head, you know, ding, ding, hey, Jim, pay attention, you're doing that thing. Then I can take some action. Mm -hmm. So we try to get each person to develop their own early warning system. And in the, the uh, Radical Collaboration book uh, that you've been talking about, uh, we have a, a list of 50 different signs of defensiveness there. So we have people go through and, and pick out what their sign might be. Maybe it's flooding with information to prove a point. Maybe it's just the opposite, withdrawal into deadly silence. You know, maybe it's a sudden drop in IQ. Maybe it's a, 
a sweaty palms or fast breathing, whatever it might be. But then if people can start paying attention to that, that can be their early warning system. Then, of course, we have to teach them what to do about it when that happens. That's, yeah. a, that's a, another project. Okay. So once, once they spot it, then they need to acknowledge to themselves that they're getting defensive. Because if they don't notice it and don't acknowledge to themselves that they're getting defensive, they won't take any other action. Then this is what we've added to this, the second edition. The next step is sort of a twofold process because when we start getting defensive, we get tunnel vision. Part of our brain shuts down. The prefrontal cortex of our brain starts shutting down. And so it's like we're looking through a little telescope there and we have this tunnel vision. So what we encourage people to do is to try to reactivate their whole brain. And they can do this in, in different ways, but a couple ways that we found very helpful is if you notice you're getting defensive or uptight, look around the room and see how many different colors you can see. Uh, try to pay attention to the different noises that you see in the, or that you hear in the room. You know, I hear the fan, I hear the car outside, I hear somebody shuffling papers, that kind of stuff. And just by focusing outward, uh, you tend to re-engage your full brain. Then once you get that done, then you need to turn your attention inward to try to understand what that fear is about. Because if you don't figure out what the fear is about, you're never going to be better at dealing with your defensiveness. Mm-hmm. When, they're, when they're talking about following uh, you know, financial fraud, the key buzzword is, is follow the money. If mm-hmm. you're talking about defensiveness, the buzzword is follow the fear. Because okay. it's always fear-based. So they have to go in and see what that fear is about. And then, uh, go ahead. Question? No, no, go ahead. Keep going. Okay. So then the next step is once they, they do that and they start recognizing they have some fear then, uh, then they can come up with their own action step to try to reduce the damage uh, of their defensiveness. So if their sign of defensiveness is flooding with information to prove a point, you know, maybe they just be quiet for 15 seconds. They don't say anything at all. Now, that won't help you if your sign is withdrawal into deadly silence. You know, then you need to speak up, uh, say something to stay engaged in the conversation. If your sign is a sudden drop in IQ and you simply get stupid, you know, go hide in the bathroom for five minutes and let your brain catch up with the rest of your body. You know, if it's heavy breathing, do some kind of a meditation practice. But something to try to moderate the damage of that particular sign of defensiveness. And then after you do that, the next step is to let it go and move on. It's never in your best interest to keep beating yourself up when you get defensive. You acknowledge it, you take some action, and move on. The last so strikes the, me as the, the absolute steps. hardest thing of all to do. Let it go and move on. Some of us, I think, will harder, <laughs> have a harder time with that than others. Yeah. All right. And you so know, I, one, yeah, one of the ahead. things that we found to be very helpful, though, too, is if you can't do this in the moment, because a lot of times, you know, people, when they get defensive, their, their, their brain just doesn't function as well. So if you can't do it in the moment then the next opportunity that you have after the meeting, after the, the conversation, you know, when you're all alone, just sit quietly for a few minutes and try to reflect on it and go through it in your own brain as though you were doing it then in the moment. Now, 
this is sort of like an after-action review, you know. But mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're actually creating new neural pathways that are going to make it easier for you to be able to do it in the moment the next time you do it. So if you can't do it in the moment, you know, don't give up then. Do it as soon as you can afterwards, just in your own mind. That's helpful. So what I see, so I'm going to just repeat the steps for everybody just to kind of help us all get focused again, is to recognize that when you are in a defensive response, that you get a bit of a tunnel vision and your brain shuts down, literally part of your brain shuts down. So I need to reactivate the whole brain. And I do that by looking outward, focusing outward, like noticing the colors and the noises in the room, anything that's not on this moment and that is outward there. And that is objective, I guess we could also say. Two is then turn inward and understand what's the fear really about. And as you said, follow the fear. The secret of defensiveness is follow the fear. And then next, I want to have my own action statements to reduce the damage. So what, and this is personalized for the nature of how I respond in defensive manners and therefore what's going to work for me in the situations I'm in and so on. And then the last bit is, you know, even after it's happened, let it go and move on. All right. Yeah. Okay, now, right. what I see, Jim, though, is, you know, you're working with somebody and they get defensive about, it, let's say, a piece of feedback that they've just received from a senior management and all the normal behaviors that you would expect to go on are going on as defensive reaction. All mm-hmm. coming out of a fear in some ways that I'm either not important enough to this manager, significant, or not competent enough, and therefore I'm not going to get the kind of promotions and opportunities I was looking for, or people don't like me, exactly as you said, significant, and competent, and liked. But you get down mm-hmm. this path of getting people to sort of start to recognize what the fear is really about, and it's like the the they go right back around in the defensive cycle all again. This t- touching that fear is so scary. They just go right back into blame mode, in effect, without even knowing they're doing it. It's justifying it. It's explaining it. So we just keep repeating yeah, the process. What do we do? And when that happens, it, well, it depends on whether they have a red zone reaction or a pink zone reaction. Mm. They're both they're both fear based, but they they go in opposite directions. You know, one's much more aggressive, one's much more passive. If you're dealing with somebody in the red zone, first uh, let me talk about what is not helpful to do, and what is the least helpful thing you can do is point out to them that they're operating in the red zone or they're getting defensive. You know, mm. if you've ever been defensive and someone says, "Wow, you're getting defensive," you know how unhelpful that is. Yeah, right. So don't do that. The most important thing that you can do if you're with someone like that is for you not to get triggered by their defensiveness. So for you to stay in the green zone, uh, you are always more effective at dealing dealing with somebody in the red zone or the pink zone if you can stay in the green zone. A lot of times people think, well, if somebody's coming at me with a very red zone aggressive hostile attitude, I have to get tough and mean and fight back. That is not an effective strategy. You can still defend yourself and set very clear boundaries from a green zone point of view. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You know? So okay. that's the main thing you can do is you don't get triggered. Another thing okay. you can do is put a lot more energy into listening to the other party because oftentimes people will go into the red zone or the pink zone if they're uh, feeling that they're not being heard. And mm-hmm. so, you know, use all of those skills that most of us have been taught and, and mostly ignore. You know, you summarize and feedback what you're hearing, check for understanding, that kind of stuff, all the active listening stuff. Mm-hmm. And then 
The final thing that's very helpful is this this interest-based approach to negotiations that I've talked about as the fifth skill, where parties focus on understanding all of the interests of both parties. Uh, if you can use that as the conflict resolution process, that can be very helpful because it takes it away from from personal attacks and starts talking about what's the underlying interest. And so if you can do those things, uh, that's very helpful for somebody in the red zone. Somebody in the pink zone, you have to keep in mind that they're in the pink zone because they're fearful. And so it's very helpful for you to make extra effort to point out to them that you really do want to hear what they have to say and that it's safe for them to do that. So you ask a lot of open-ended questions. You know, help me understand what your thinking is here. What do you think should happen next? Why do you think that's the case? You know, what do you think that's about? Those kinds of questions. And you need to do a really good job of listening. And then also in the pink zone, I encourage parties to use this interest-based approach, focusing on understanding all of the interests before you start coming up with solutions. And I think if you can do those things, you're going to be uh, ahead of the game, much more effective. That's, um, yeah, labeling somebody as defensive usually doesn't get you very far. I think that's absolutely, totally true. And I see so many people who do get triggered by a behavior from somebody else. Let's say it was totally inappropriate. And for who knows what reason, kind of doesn't matter. And then the belief is that I now have to, in effect, retaliate. But it's respond in kind. If that person was aggressive and loud and challenging, then I need to be back Mm -hmm. aggressive and loud and challenging. And that's the only way I get respect. And I love what you're saying, which is no. That does no good, that you want to stay in the green zone regardless where the other person is. And you can still defend yourself. You can still set your boundaries and throw your energy into listening and into interest-based approaches. Yeah, one of the things people get wrong about a collaboration is they assume that we're just talking about being nice to each other, playing nicey-nicey. That's very pink zone. That's not necessarily green zone. In the green zone, you need to be very assertive. And you need to set very clear boundaries. And if you can't set clear boundaries and and make those demands, uh, you know, if you can't tell someone this is not okay for you to keep doing that, you will never be good at collaboration. You have to be willing to do that. It's a very assertive uh, type of point of view. Okay. But from a good place. And I mean by good place because it's interest-based approach. We're still, you know, Uh, taking care of yourself in the process. Right. And, right. and, and keeping aware of the interests of all the parties. Right. Yeah. Don't I wish. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the more hard, more difficult things that anyone in a leadership role is ever going to be asked to do is to create and maintain a long-term collaborative green zone culture. This is hard yeah. work. It takes a lot of attention. So, uh, you know, don't, I don't want to give the impression that this is simple stuff uh, that anybody can go out and do it simply by snapping their fingers, you know. It takes a lot of work. It takes skill, and it takes awareness. I think um, as I reflect back on this one, Jim, I think the emphasis on the pink zone is one of the most insightful pieces because I think I have a lot of – I see a lot of companies – where the belief is that they're being more collaborative because they're not being outwardly aggressive or hostile to each other. 
And all right. they're doing is just not talking about it. So it's pink zone. Right. And I think that's a really, really important distinction. Okay, Jim, we've got three minutes left. What's your one piece of advice on openness, assuming now we've really tackled defensiveness correctly? Well, uh, I think you need to be aware of the, the fear that other people might be having, and you need to be a much better listener. If I could change okay. any one thing with just a snap of the fingers in most situations, it would be if you could become a better listener. Okay. So being a better listener, Jim, why is it that we don't, I mean, we know what is required. We know what the skills are, but why don't we do such a good, just good job of listening? Well, because we get defensive ourselves. <laughs> we want to, and we want, you know, we spend more time trying to figure out how we're going to respond than we do actually understanding what they're saying. So we're not paying attention to what they're saying. We're paying attention to what we're going to respond because we don't like feeling at a disadvantage. We don't like feeling vulnerable. Okay, so, so we're right back to that get defensiveness. To the point where you, if you get to the point where you can feel secure in that, you can obviously be a much better listener. Just being curious about what the other party is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always used the phrase with clients that gentle curiosity I don't want aggressive curiosity. <laughs> Gentle curiosity yeah. is yeah. what's going to get you there. Okay. Yeah. I, All think right, it, I think so. I think that's good advice. It's, um, I think this is extraordinarily hard work, as you have clearly said, to learn to be collaborative. And I want to come back to where we started this segment at the end of the last segment of the notion is there are five skills. It's not just about self-awareness, and it's not just about throwing a team together and say, go ahead, or it's not just a saying, uh, you know, talk out your differences, and it's not just saying, let's be nice to each other. It is really learning five core skills, and particularly understanding the normal cycle of defensiveness that we all feel on a regular basis. And I'm going to come back to something you said already, that if you want to understand defensiveness, follow the fear. That it's always a fear of being significant, largely insignificant, incompetent, or not liked enough. I guess significance, competence, and likability is what you said. And that we don't like feeling that one. So we do all sorts of things to avoid feeling all of those. And that's where we get into all sorts of outward behaviors. And Track your own behaviors, understand what those are, then um, have, you know, a chance to get your brain back in gear so you're looking around the room, and then turn inward and understand what that fear is really about, and then have an action step customized for you that helps you reduce the damage, and then last of all, let it go and move on. And I think underscoring all of this is the skill of listening with curiosity as well as this interest-based approach where I'm trying to understand the interests of all parties around the table before I go to solutions. Great summary. <laughs> Fabulous, you, I think you said everything that I said, except you said it in about 30 seconds. So Yeah, but <laughs> well it's done. easy to say it. It's a, hard, a whole other thing to actually practice it on a day-in-and-day basis. So my guest today, again, is Jim Tam. We're looking at the second edition of Radical Collaboration, as you've heard with lots of insights um, added to this one. And Jim has been described by Fast Company as the ace relationship builder. I think you see why now. And I love this emphasis about looking both at the culture and the systems, as well as the individual one-to-one. Jim, thank you for an insightful show. Wanda, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. 
thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.